Today, we will continue on from where we left off in Philippians last week. In chapter 3, we saw how Paul warns them about the false teachers, the dogs and the mutilators who put their confidence in the flesh. And in contrast, Paul shows that he puts his confidence in Christ alone, counting all other things as worthless. He then goes on to explain that if they understand this confidence in Christ, they should be united with Paul and holding on to the same things. So the question that is left at this point is how will they live their lives? How will they work out their salvation with trembling hands? Well, we come to chapter 4 and we see Paul pointing out that actually there is a problem of Christian unity within the church. So with that, let's have a look at our passage. Our passage today can be divided into three parts. Verse 2 and 3 becomes the first part that tells us about the problem faced by the Philippian church. Then in verse 4 to 7, Paul teaches us how to find a meaningful solution to the problem. And then verse 8 to 9 gives us an exhortation to commit to practicing what Paul has been preaching. So let's begin with the first part, verse 2 to 3. Do keep your Bibles open. The problem in the church that Paul is addressing here is made clear in this passage. Immediately, Paul opens this section with the mention of two women from the church of Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche. Paul entreats with them, that is the word used here means Paul pleads and begs with them humbly to agree in the Lord. What he means here is that he wants them to come to a peaceful understanding for the sake of Jesus. Now the shocking thing here is not so much that two people from church are having a disagreement. We all know that happens all the time, unfortunately. Rather, the shocking thing here is that Paul is bringing it up in a very public manner. This letter to the Philippians is meant to be read to the whole congregation in a public setting. Now, if the pastor is doing this today, I'm sure someone will say, oh, the pastor is being spiritually abusive, or he's bullying the congregation member, or he's misusing his authority to embarrass people. So how can we understand what Paul is doing here in calling out these two women publicly? Is he trying to embarrass them? Or does he see them as troublemakers, so he's going all out <coughs> to out them out to the congregation? Now, it's worth thinking about the context of this passage so that we understand this more clearly. Now, Paul is in prison. So he definitely does not have newspapers delivered to him, and he definitely couldn't Google what's up with the Church of Philippi. So most likely... He found this out through Epaphroditus, who was sent to look after Paul in prison. And this implies that it's actually a big issue that he is coming and he's reporting this to Paul. And we can see also that this must be a big priority for Paul. Because while he's in prison and suffering, he takes time to write about this issue in a letter. And he is trying to solve it even though he is in prison himself. So clearly, Paul must think that disagreements between Christians, especially Christian leaders, is a big deal. Remember that throughout this whole letter, Paul has been seeking to show how important Christian unity in terms of partnership in the gospel is. So the fact that there are two leaders 
who are not willing to put aside their personal issues and be united for the sake of the gospel exhibits the exact opposite of all Paul has been preaching and exhorting these people to do. So of course Paul has to bring it up. Yet, I also want you to notice that actually Paul brings this up in a very kind way. He's not calling them troublesome sheep in the congregation. He's not chiding them. Instead, he affirms that they have labored side by side with him for gospel ministry and that their names are in the book of life, which means Paul is certain of their faith in Christ and the state of their soul. So Paul indeed does call them out, but he pleads with them gently and affirms this, that these two are faithful Christians. They just happen to be having some differences which has led to a disagreement. So Paul's goal here is not to shame them or to attack them. Paul even uses this opportunity to call on the other Christians in the church in order to get them involved in helping reconcile the two ladies for the sake of the Lord. So the public nature of this exposure is also to encourage the church to not sit aside silently, but becomes then a call for the church to get involved in peacemaking between Christians in the church. And so just from here, we can already learn a few things, right? Faithful Christians can disagree. It happens. Perhaps both of them have very strong conviction about certain things and therefore are not willing to back down. Perhaps both of them think their position is the best decision for the church and to compromise is not good for the church. Now, their differences most likely come from a good place. Paul has affirmed these are good Christian leaders. But unfortunately, it is threatening the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. It is very likely that they have gathered some following for the positions that each of them hold. In fact, most likely the reason Paul is calling out the people in the church, the faithful ones to be involved, is possibly because the followers have started gathering to either side, which is leading to a division in the church. There's Camp Yodia and there's Camp Syntyche. And so Paul is indirectly telling the church they should not pick sides and instead should seek to bring these two leaders together. And we can understand that, right? Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul sets the foundation for unity by encouraging the church to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Therefore, we can understand why this is a big deal for Paul in that context. So we too must see that Christian unity is not an optional part of being in the church. It is essential because it points towards unity in gospel witnessing and living in response to that gospel. Earlier, in this very letter, Paul has established that as followers of Christ, our focus must be on bringing the gospel to the nations and building up each other for that purpose. And that is exactly what Paul has demonstrated through his writings and even through his own actions. In fact, even this letter to the Philippians is written for them so that he can point them back to the gospel and help build them up for the sake of the gospel that needs to go out.
So in that sense, we can see that our performance as Christians is actually not measured the way that we would measure performance in the workplace. It's not about who has the best idea, fight it out and decide who has the strongest argument. It is not about who is the wisest, who can be the most critical of the other person's work, but rather it becomes the question of, can people in the church be united in the gospel by seeking to agree in the Lord? Now, this idea of agreeing in the Lord is not saying that we have to force ourselves to have no convictions about theology and church life. Rather, it's about saying that while we can have convictions about certain things, we must remember that the ultimate goal is to honour Christ. And so we can learn to compromise on things in such a way that we are still faithful to the gospel and essential Christian doctrines. So, the question for us to ask when we disagree with someone's ministry is how do we honour Christ in such a way that we can still go forward to be united in gospel ministry? Or do we stick to our guns regardless of what it does to Christian unity? And so this applies even if we genuinely believe our way is the correct way, the other person is not doing a good job. Remember, even in Paul's own example that we see in this letter, when people were preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition in chapter 1, Paul only saw the gospel was being preached. And what did he do? He rejoiced in the preaching of the gospel, even though their intention was to afflict Paul. So if that's the case with Paul's example, how should these two faithful women who have labored together for the gospel approach their differences. They should agree, seek to work together, and bring unity to the church. They might have to make compromises in their position for the sake of the unity of the church so that the gospel can be proclaimed efficiently. So their primary goal should be to resolve their differences in such a way that keeps the church united for the gospel so that the gospel can go out with a unified front. There is no place for things that drives us away from this goal. Now, of course, a caveat. We have to be careful here because this specific example shows us two people who are faithful to the gospel in their own ways. Now, Paul would not have extended the same grace to people who are seeking to distort the gospel. Paul would have then called them dogs and evildoers, like he has done earlier. And so that means we do compromise and work with each other as long as the gospel is faithfully preached. So unity is important, but you must remember it's for the sake of the gospel. So it's not about being united to just avoid confrontation, especially if it's people who are teaching a false gospel. right? If the issue is a gospel issue, then it is right to fight tooth and nail to preserve and restore the gospel. Now, to take a practical example that may be relevant to Christian churches here in Malaysia, you've heard of the worship wars, right? Uh, that's when different churches have different conviction about how best to worship God corporately. Now, even here in Malaysia, you will see there will be the liturgical type congregations and they will not agree with using drums and guitar like how the contemporary type of congregations do. Right? They will think that that's wrong 
And at the same time, the contemporary congregation will think that worshipping only with the choir is not the right way to worship God. So because of this difference in view, we would have seen within the church or between churches, people who make it a big deal and argue about the style of worship. And sometimes this can lead to churches trying to entice members from other churches or to groups forming within churches with people being eagerly against the other position. But what we need to see is at the end of the day, are both ministry of the different churches, liturgical and contemporary, meant to bring out the gospel and glorify God? Actually, that's their goal, isn't it? And so we can say yes to that. And that should mean, regardless of personal preferences and convictions, actually they should be united in gospel conviction and work together in unity despite the differences. And as you look at the churches, you will see so many things that can divide the church. Armenians versus Calvinists, high church versus low church, KJV Bible only church, those who believe communion must only be served, uh, communion must only be wine, and some who thinks grape juice is okay, and so on, right? So here in St. Mary's, we have both liturgical and contemporary services, and what is edifying is when you see members from these different services coming together, helping each other out, supporting each other for the sake of gospel work. And so we see unity in how people come together to, to serve in the church council, to volunteer for help when there's need in the service, even willing to spend their money and time to come together for church camp so they can edify each other. And so for those who put gospel unity even above the differences in how we worship together, well done to you. That is what Paul is talking about. And for those of you who still feel discomfort because of the differences, or may, there may be other things as well, right? Maybe how we perceive ministry should be like, how we think the liturgy should be like, how a particular leader chooses to run his ministry. What we should do is we, we should see that we want to love them and we want to work with them for the sake of being united for the gospel. So therefore, we should not seek to undermine and attack each other. Because if we do that, then we end up like Yudea and Sintiki and we bring disagreement because of our, sorry, we bring divisions because of our disagreement. Now, sometimes we may have genuine questions on accountability, on how things are done, and that's not wrong. We could disagree for legitimate reasons on if this person should be running that ministry or if the direction that the ministry is taking is a good one or a decision that a ministry leader has taken. We might have questions, how is the money being spent? Why didn't you do it this way? Why do you allow people to do it that way? Now, there's nothing wrong in asking these questions. They are good questions for accountability. But what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, are we asking this in a good way that it becomes a question for the sake of accountability between Christians or are we asking it in such a way in order to express our dissatisfaction, to shoot down the other person or to establish ourselves as the one who knows what is right? 
So we should look to our hearts and see that there is a possibility, a danger, that we might be following in the footsteps of Yudhya and Sintaki. So, consider this question. Are there people with whom you disagree on how ministry here should run? If they are, then Paul says, put unity above our differences if they are people who are faithful for the gospel. If they're doing gospel work faithfully, then we should seek to agree in the Lord. Now we can bring up our differences of opinions in such a way and we can still challenge them, but we do it in such a way that our goal in doing that is so that we can figure out how to agree in the Lord and then work together for the gospel proclamation. So choosing to leave ministry or the church or gathering support in order to fight them or complaining openly or publicly in order to undermine them, these are not Christian options. We only do that if they are distorting the gospel. Now, this may be a hard thing to accept, right? Because oftentimes, we are convinced that we are right. And to be honest, it often comes from a good place in our heart. It comes because we care for the ministry. And so these are good concerns. But Paul points us to come back to the gospel and see our worries in light of gospel unity and partnership in the gospel. Next. If we don't personally have an issue with someone, but we know of someone who has issue with someone else, then Paul is implying here clearly that we have an obligation. It becomes our duty then to help these people to reconcile and agree in the Lord. We cannot take sides and join in dividing the congregation. And at the same time, we cannot turn a blind eye and ignore it and leave things as it is because eventually it will bring about to a loss of unity. So we must, as a church, be involved in any disagreements by reminding the parties of the need for unity for the sake of the gospel. So are there people who you should be having conversations with? To do this is right, and that is exactly what the Apostle Paul would demand from you. Now, this is not an easy thing to do, and so Paul doesn't just tell them to do it and leave it to them to figure it out. Instead, in the second part of the passage, from verses 4 to 7, Paul gives clear instructions as to how we should be seeking to find peace so that we can work towards this unity that he's been preaching throughout the letter. And the first thing that Paul brings up in verse 4 is for us to rejoice in the Lord. And he repeats it for further emphasis. Again, I will say, rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is to put aside our concerns, worries, and anxieties, to put aside the things that we think we are entitled to, our egos, and instead, look to the Lord and what He has done instead. It is for us to look at Christ and realize his surpassing worth, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. To know that Christ is victorious and he has the name above every name, is the true ruler of all things, as Philippians 3, verse 9 tells us. And to know that that very same God is at work in us, in the church, for his glory. 
as Philippians 3.13 tells us. And as we look at this great worth of Christ, the assurance that we have eternal life, and to know that He is at work in our lives in the church should lead us to rejoice in Him, count all things that hinders us from serving Him rightly as worthless. And so, in truly rejoicing in the Lord, we are then able to be calm, to trust in His work, and carry on with the gospel work that He has given us to do, without relying on our human fears, anxieties, and anxiousness about how are we to proceed with this great mission. And so that's why in verse 5, he reminded us, let our reasonableness be known. Paul teaches us to be faithful in holding fast to the word of the gospel, and that is what will ensure that our labor is not in vain. Our trust must not come in our own wisdom or our own efforts, but from a genuine trust in the Lord, which is even leading us to be willing even to die for the sake of the gospel. And that's why Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain, as he did in chapter 1, verse 29. If we genuinely rejoice in the Lord's victory through his obedience and sacrifice, we will focus on being united in doing what he has told us to do instead of each of us pulling in different directions. Thus, Paul reminds us then in verse 6 to do everything by prayer and supplication. When we are in doubt, we ask God, trusting in the Lord's victory, knowing that God has favored his people and God is at work. And God promises, right, that whatever we ask for, we will get. Actually, no. What God promises in verse 7 is not that whatever you ask, you will get, but rather what he promises us is that the peace of God will guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's answer to the struggle that we have when we disagree, when we are anxious about the ministry. He says, trust in God, ask him in prayer, and carry on to do what he has commanded, which is the gospel work. And God's promise in response to our prayers then, is that if we truly rejoice in the Lord, trust in Jesus, then we will have the peace that will guard our hearts and mind from faltering, the peace that will lead us to focus on and trust in Jesus, and through that bring the gospel to the nation. So he must be the focus in all things. And that's why he asks us to pray. So, if you don't like the ministry direction, and you feel you can do 10 times better, if you can just convince people to gang up together with you so you can take over that ministry forcefully, what should you do? The answer is pray and trust that God wants us to be united for the gospel, that God is in work at the church, even with a leader who may be weak, and so we can cast aside our anxieties because Jesus is king. And when we do that, God will give you peace in Jesus so that you may continue to do gospel work in a manner that is united and the church will bring glory to God. And this peace was demonstrated by Paul, right? When people were preaching the gospel to his detriment, trying to trouble Paul in chapter 1. Because even then, Paul rejoices that the gospel is going out 
and in response he declares to live with Christ to die again. So even death does not scare him. He can trust that the Lord is at work. And this, friends, is what peace is. This is our goal when it comes to ministry. And this is the heart of Paul's practical application for us to see in the church as we have looked through the text from Philippians. Everything that we have learned from having confidence in the Lord to how Jesus is victorious, the reminder that every knee will bend, every tongue confess, the exhortation from Paul, run the race well, is to prime us for this one main purpose, to be united with each other regardless of our difference for the sake of the gospel. Or to put it another way, to glorify God together in response to his grace by making disciples of Jesus Christ. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's our church mission statement. To glorify God together in response to his grace by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Notice how that points us to working together in unity, how we are to focus on the gospel work that leads to making disciples. And we are reminded that we do this in response to his grace towards us in that very same gospel that we are commanded to proclaim. So with that, we come to the last part in verse 8 and 9 and we see Paul making one last exhortation. He asks us to consider his message to us so far, presumably in the letter to the Philippians. So as you read the letter, was there anything true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise in what Paul has been saying so far, or has it all been a load of nonsense? Surely we all agree with all the things that Paul has said. And so, in response to his message, he tells us now to think of these things that he has said, to consider the wisdom that he has given us, to see that it is perfect wisdom because these are not just Paul's word, these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit to guide us. And so we are therefore to think about what Paul has said so far, and then in verse 9 he tells us what to do with it. Practice them. Practice these things that you have heard from Paul so far. Practice having the right attitude to the gospel, that we are even willing to see death as gain. Practice having the mind of Christ so that we may be found standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Gospel unity is a real calling from the Lord. Therefore, we cannot let our different characters drive us apart. We cannot let our different worries and anxieties drive us apart. We must be united in the gospel and that unity comes through the peace that surpasses all understanding that keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we come to him in prayer with all our anxieties and worries about the ministry and the work of the gospel. And so as we practice this then, the promise from God is the God of peace who has given us peace through the blood of Jesus will unite us as one people and be with us. And through that, then, we can strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. Through that, we can finally be proclaiming to live is Christ and to die is gain. Through that, we can count all other things that seeks to upend the gospel as worthless 
compared to the gospel. So church, let us seek fervently to continue to be united for the gospel, shedding aside anything that hinders us from this work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us conviction that what we have heard today is your commands to us. Help us, Father, to learn to come to agree in the Lord when we have differences with each other for the sake of the gospel. It is not easy for us to do this, Father, so lead us to pray so that we may find peace in rejoicing in you, in trusting in your work in the church. And so we commit this church to you, Father, that we may be united as one to bring forth the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.